بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه نوينا تعلم وتعليم ونفل وانتباع والتذكر والتذكير والإفادة والاستفادة والحث على تمسك بكتاب الله وسنة رسوله صلى الله عليه وسلم والدعاء للهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء وجه الله تعالى ومرضوته وقربه وثوابه سبحانه وتعالى وما علمه الله من صالح النيات نسأل الله أن يجعلنا من العلماء العاملين فائزين بعلم يقين وعين يقين وحق اليقين ويرزقنا كمال المتابعة لسيد المرسلين Okay, so that we are again going to go through a few of the intentions here and we have reached the intentions for what is known as Khalwa and Khalwa is essentially seclusion it's going into a state where you are alone by yourself you free yourself up from distractions so that you can focus on what is truly important and we know that it was the way of our Prophet is that he yatakhalla? He used to go in a state of khalwa. It's the same verb in Ghar Hira, the cave of Hira, before that he received prophethood, and before he received revelation. وسلم, this was his custom, and he would go for that periods of time, and he would come back and yatazawud, take provision, get provision, and then he would return. And his blessed wife, Sayyidah Khadija, was very supportive of him from even that time. And that realizing is that this was something that was wanted from him by his Lord for him to be in this state. And we don't know much about the nature of the Prophet's worship. When he was in Ghadhira, the narration says, وَكَانَ يَتَّحَنَّثْ And that hint is that essentially sin, it's wrongdoing, and yet the hanath is ridding oneself of it, of it. And obviously we know the Prophet ﷺ didn't have that problem to begin with, is that the Prophets are protected before and after receiving prophecy from major and minor sins, let alone that associating partner with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or that believing in something that is that unbefitting for them to believe in. And so in other words, is that the way you would look at that, because then the that narration, narration says, It's worship. It's a form of worship. So we know that the Prophet was worshipping the exact nature of what that worship was. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam. Allah ta'ala knows best. But we know that he worshipped. And we know that that time of being alone precedes his receiving of revelation. So there are some say, that point to the importance of people that being in a state of isolation, being in a state of seclusion, before that they then have openings and go out to benefit people. And that's understood in, in a that relative sense in relation to each person. And that if you look at it, it makes sense. Even if someone's a physician, there's a time where they are that focusing on their studies. They're in medical school for however many years and that how often do they actually get to see their family? How often do they get to see their friends? It's a type of seclusion. 
and even in relation to studies. They're focusing on something so that then when they graduate and they go on to do their residency, then that they're still in a type of uh, seclusion slightly, that the door opens up a little bit at for them and so forth until they actually are licensed and then they start practicing, but little by little. So everything we do, it's kind of like that. So this is not a, a meaning that is that far from that our intuition and what we understand the way that things really should be. And that if you even look at a plant and a seed that grows, is that a seed has to be buried under the earth. This is why Sidi ibn Atayr al-Sakandri says, Idfan nafsaka fi al-khumul. Bury yourself in the earth of obscurity. As he said, because is that anything that is exposed too quickly, it won't reach its fruition. If that a that sprout is exposed too quickly to a wind or a rainstorm, is that it could easily get washed away. If it's stepped on, that it could put an end to it very easily. And so it's very delicate at first until it grows and grows and grows and grows. And human beings are like that. And this is the way that teachers tend to be with their students is that they want to give them time to grow. They want to give them time to learn. And even it's like that in our own spiritual lives. It doesn't mean that you don't want to help people. No, you want to help everyone on earth if possible. But you also have to know where you're at in the moment. And you can't overextend yourself. And you have to know what your limits are. And it's actually very dangerous to overextend yourself and to not understand your limits. And that's one of the most beautiful things of all in a traditional setting. And I remember this very clearly from Mauritania, and even also where I was studying in Yemen, is that you see the different students that along the way, is that some were very early on in their studies, some were advanced in their studies, some had finished their basic studies and were starting to teach, others were seasoned teachers. And then you have the great shuyukh and the great teachers who are also teachers of teachers. And you get to see kind of what they do and what they don't do at every stage. And that they're very careful and they're very clear on what they can't do. They know their limits. And they stop there and they say, well, this is how I can help you. Anything beyond that, I'm going to send you to so-and-so. And this is very important in, in the world, but also uh, in relation to the dean. So that's a little preface for the importance of seclusion. That relates to stages in our lives, but it also as we go through the various stages of our lives, happens uh, on a regular basis. So even if we're not fully in a state of seclusion or isolation, that at least a part of the day, we should be in a state of seclusion or isolation. At least a part of the day. Even if it only be five minutes. Where we're focusing on the relationship with our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And in all of this, whenever we go into a state of khalwa, uh, what intention do we make? Or what intentions do we make? And he's going to mention a few. He says, the first is that you devote yourself to, to worship. And so when you're in khalwa, that's a time to block everything else out and focus yourself on the worship of Allah Ta'ala. We were just recording that before this session, uh, a, a lecture from the book Minhaj al-Abideen. The Path of the Worshippers of Imam Ghazali. And it's a beautiful book. And he has what are called the Aqabat al-Sab'a, the seven hurdles and obstacles on the way to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the first is knowledge, the second is repentance, and the third is that he calls them awa'ik. And there's four impediments. And one of them is the world. 
And one of the things that he says about the nature of the dunya is that the more that we have of it, the more preoccupied we become, lahirin and baltinin, outwardly and inwardly. And I know that just by now living in a house. Subhanallah, the amount of time that it takes just for the upkeep of a house. Ya Allah. It's one thing if you're renting. It's a lot easier if you're renting. But just the upkeep of a house that all of a sudden today one of the fire alarms starts beeping. And you got to make sure you have batteries and you realize you don't have batteries. So you either have to order them or you have to go out and get them. And you have to wait and tolerate the beeping and go or de detach it. And then that you have to, if you have a water softener, you have to make sure that you have enough that salt in the, and then all of a sudden an ice bridge is created in your water softener. You have to call a specialist and wait several days for him to come out, take time out of your day to meet him, and he shows you how to do it. And then you have to change your air filters. And then you have to service that your HVAC system in the spring and in the fall and make sure the AC and the heat are all working. And then your basement might flood and you have to fix the drain. And then you have to make sure that the drain doesn't clog and that the leaves are all swept up. And you might add on something to your house and that's a whole process that takes a lot of time. It's just constant. And then you didn't realize, oh my God, my gutters are, uh, my gutters are filled with that leaves. I got to get that taken care of. It's just one thing after the other. My sump pump now has issues, so now I got to get that fixed. And just the amount of time that goes into the upkeep of a house or just even cleaning a house, keeping the carpets clean or keeping the dishes washed or anything the amount of time that goes into one house, let alone if you had two, let alone if you had three or four or several properties, or that if you have investments all over the place and a whole bunch of different things. And the point is, is that the nature of the world is that it preoccupies us. Outwardly and inwardly. Outwardly because you have to spend all that time doing those things. And it's a significant amount of time. If you just look at Everything that we need now in the modern world, you add in all your doctor's appointments and all of your dentist appointments and going to the cleaners and that making sure everything's okay for the kids' school and going to figure out what's going All of these things that we have in after-school activities, that in and of itself is a lot. In and of itself. And then you start adding, let alone we have another property like we have here and everything goes along with that. It's like having two and a half homes because it's a bigger property and every oh all of a sudden that you have you find yourself outwardly having to spend a significant amount of time until you can hire someone just put it all on their shoulders uh, but uh, he's not paying attention <laughs> or maybe he is but then inwardly as well ya Allah because you're constantly thinking oh my god I forgot this oh my god I gotta do this and and if, you, if, you, if you're not constantly thinking about it, something slips through the cracks. And so you have to think about it. But the point here is, it's just you're preoccupied. Now, if you make a righteous intention, it's not that you don't get reward for it, but it distracts you from worship. There's no doubt about that. Because sometimes these things will come to you while you're in prayer. These things will come to you that, you know, at times you should be focusing on other things. And that the point here is, is that this is why it's so important, is that we have times during the day where we just devote ourselves to worship, and you leave your phone outside, and that you don't let anything distract you in that time. You force it out of your mind, as difficult as, and you just focus. 
And uh, that's a very difficult, and different people can process that in different ways. And, um, you know, sometimes you have a list of a hundred things to do. There's only so many hours you have in one day. And to be able to that stop at a certain point, take a break, and focus on your deen is essential that we learn how to do that. And it's not easy. It's essential. Otherwise, you just get completely overwhelmed. And then you can't do anything right. That job that you're supposed to be doing, or the task, or the duty that's on your shoulders, or that the religious side of things. And especially for people where it's all or nothing. They're either fully into something or fully not into something. Is that we have to find that balance. And to be able to that separate all of these other things that are part of our life, which they are. And we have to make intentions behind them. But we also have to have times where we just devote our hearts. And again, there's different stages of our lives where this is relatively easier or more difficult. And then, that he says here, that you may be accepted by Allah. Now that can be an intention that we make for a lot of various things, but especially for khalwa, especially when we're in that state of khalwa, Ya Rab, accept us. You want Allah to accept you. And one of the great du'as that we can make is that, Oh Allah, accept us in the state we are in as we are. Oh Allah, accept us as we are. Or another version of that is, Allahum la tahramna khayra ma'indaka li sharri ma'indana. Oh Allah, do not forbid us, do not withhold from us the good that is with you that because of the evil that is with us. And so that you realize, Ya Rabbi, I'm falling short and despite my state, accept me as I am. Iqballa ala ma fina. Accept us just as we are. So, but then also, to protect people from your evil. And they explicitly mention this, uh, to be very careful to go into khalba with the intention of protecting yourself from the evil of other people. Because there's very subtly a type of self-righteousness. I'm going to protect myself from those people. Right? That's almost like a type of arrogance where you're thinking you're better than someone else. If you go into a state of isolation, if you move into a place to be somewhat isolated, and that to be in a, a type of seclusion, is that your intention is, Ya Rab, I know who I am when I'm around people. I'm protecting other people from me, right? And not the opposite, even though he does mention that from, as one of the intentions. But the focus is that protecting people from our own evil, our own issues that when we interact with them, but these are the type of things that happen. And we make the intention to rectify our heart. Is that those times of seclusion that we have on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a quarter, monthly or quarterly basis, on a yearly basis. Ideally that we have different levels of seclusion that we that put as that part of our yearly schedule. And one of the intentions that we make is to rectify our hearts and heal during those periods in ways so that we can then get back to work and that help other people. We also make the intention to expose ourselves to spiritual openings. And this is one of the great times that we are um, especially, um, that this is one of the great times where we are that especially um, that uh, receptive to spiritual openings is when we're in a state of khalwa. There's, there's no doubt about that. You could receive an opening any time. But when your heart is focused, your heart is directed towards Allah Ta'ala, 
um, you are that in a much greater state in order to be able to receive and the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there are a number of other intentions that we can that make as well. And um, that uh, he also mentions here that the words of the great Shaykh Imam Abu Hassan al-Shadri, so we'll just read through these, has also mentioned ten benefits of khalwa. So some of these are intentions that you can make and some of them are seen as benefits. Safety and protection from the harm of the tongue. Safety and protection from the harm of gazing. Shielding and protecting the heart from ostentation, flattery, and other diseases. Renouncing the world and its pleasures and feelings of satisfaction towards it. Safety from bad company and from mixing with those who are abased. Devoting yourself to worship dhikr and the resolve to be God-fearing and pious. To attain the sweetness of obedience. To comfort the heart and body since mixing with people brings about the weariness of the heart. To protect yourself and your religion from engaging in evil and the disagreements that arise from mixing with people. The ability to worship with reflection and contemplation, which is the greatest aim of Khalwa. And that he, that uh, Habib Saad mentions here, which is worth reading. What needs to be stressed about Khalwa is that it is not meant to be continuous. Just as a sick person spends a short spell in a hospital to rid the body of illness, after which time he leaves the hospital in better health with stronger immunity and enjoying the grace of health. Similarly, a Muslim who spends a short period in khalwa will subsequently have a strengthened relationship with his ordinary heart that has been replenished with iman and certainty. And there has been a book published recently that I, I uh, haven't had the opportunity to read, but it's been translated by Sidi that Saraka Abdul Aziz, Abdul Aziz Saraka, uh, the uh, merit or the benefits of seclusion. And um, Dr. Shadi wrote the foreword to it, and it's a short treatise by Sheikh Abdul Ghani and Nabulusi, where he, they speak of some of the benefits of seclusion and the various times where it's especially um, encouraged. And, um, you know, we, so, so we shouldn't think that in all circumstances for all people that it's always about engaging, engaging, engaging. We have to be balanced. In general, yes, we as believers, you were the best of all communities sent forth to people. So there's no doubt our dimension, our religion, everything about our deen that has a social dimension. Um, and we can't deny that. However, it doesn't mean that's for every person and every time and at every stage of their life. Is that many of those obligations are communal obligations where the whole point is certain people fulfill them at certain times and as you go through the various stages in your life is that you have what's best for you in any given moment and as long as there's someone fulfilling those obligations um, that it removes the burden from the others. So it's, it's, we have to look at things holistically and that for our own selves and for the community there are times that we simply have to be in a state of worship. It is healthy to have people in our community that are focusing on worship. And oftentimes these are people that are means for the warding off of tribulation for the entire community uh, that we live in and are that some of the most important people of all that not just for human beings but also for animals and the environment and so forth the, the blessing of those people that actually that um, that goes beyond merely the human sect and goes as well into the other kingdoms as well okay so let's uh because I need this. Can you just get the uh, book from the? Oh, he's got it there. 
تفضل فصل الثالث Okay, so Bismillah, uh, in this uh, short section that uh, Imam Haddad is reminding us about how to view our time, and this actually is, uh, goes hand in hand with what we just took by way of Khalwa and by intentions, because that accordingly, based upon someone's assessment of their time, is the way that they will respond and carry themselves in that particular time. And he's pointing out the fact that in every time there's always good and evil. There's always good and evil in the world. Even during the time of the Prophet ﷺ, if this time that we that think so highly of, that for us is the model, there were companions who did wrong. There's no doubt. Now, out of adab, we have a particular perspective about those companions, is that we see that wrong from those companions as being a means for us to come to know what to do after them when we actually do wrong. And we believe that they're forgiven. We believe all of the companions that died upon Iman and belief in our Prophet ﷺ is that they are forgiven by Allah Ta'ala and have attained the contentment of Allah. So they are special. And that there are even that more special companions amongst them. That for instance, that those that the Prophet ﷺ informed us about from the Battle of Badr is that Allah that uh, that in Allah Ta'ala that uh, the Prophet said is that is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had that uh, said to the people who fought in the battle of Badr is that, that do whatever it is that you want is that all of your sins are forgiven and we know that there were incidents where some of them uh, that uh, committed very serious that uh, 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 infractions after that, and that as that this is something special for them, though. Uh, so anyhow, that in every time there is good and there is evil, 
And um, but if you think about the number of companions that existed during the time of the Prophet compared to the number of people in the world, it was a tiny fraction. So there's no doubt that there's people that even in their own society, let alone in the world, that were not doing good. And so that, that we're, when we speak about these good times, these evil times, is that uh, we speak about them in a, in a very specific way. And whereas you could have a non-Muslim historian who comes in and says, oh, well, their whole history is focused upon everything from their own lens and so forth, and you know, bring in these ways of viewing the world that make Muslims seem as if that they are very naive and uh, even uneducated in their presentation of their own history. But their whole point is that they forget the whole purpose of us speaking about our quote-unquote sacred history in the way that we do. We speak about our sacred history in that way, and we call them good times, especially these early times, the time of the Prophet and the Khulafa al-Rashidin, and the time where there's an abundant amount more good than there is evil, is that from the standpoint of that how you and I then will internalize those same principles in our own time and be inspired by their stories. So it's perfectly legitimate and that perfectly that balance for us to look at these times in this way because it's supposed to be a source of inspiration and it doesn't mean that things were perfect on the contrary they were real people who went through real circumstances who had to make real decisions and sometimes fall short in that however we always have to remember too is that these were people that were validated by Allah and that is one of those amazing things if you think about that these are human beings they were human beings they were human beings however these were human beings that took these principles put them into practice and were validated by Allah and most people just simply can't understand that for some reason it's very easy to understand and it's the same way that we look at the great scholars throughout the centuries that contributed to the development of the various sciences of the deen whether it be tafsir or hadith or whether it be fiqh or usul or any of the other sciences loha and on and on and on is that it's not that they were ma'asum only prophets are divinely protected but they were special people and they were people in themselves that were validated by Allah and so the opinion of someone that is validated by Allah is not like the opinion of someone who's not validated by Allah in a number of different ways and sometimes it can look very similar but it's different it's different because of the validation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is why that when you have these people of tajdeed that come along and renew the deen in any given time and find ways to present the same realities of the Quran but in the tongue and understanding of the people of the time is that sometimes there's other people who attempt to do the same thing but their state with Allah is not the same and it doesn't have the same result and this is the reasons because these are not people that right have been validated by Allah and what we really mean by that is is that people that Allah Ta'ala has taken their affairs over which is if you look at the word in Arabic, wali, waliyayali, has a number of meanings. Um, one of it is to be close, okay, to be near. And um, it's also to be a patron of um, and to be in control of. And so that when you take it to a added form, tawalla, 
is to take the affairs over of someone. So the wali is the one that Allah tawalla umuruhu. Allah has taken over that person's affair. Does it mean that they don't act? Of course they act. But it's not just about them acting. So for instance, that you have someone who is beloved to Allah Ta'ala. They make a decision and that decision could be the same as someone else who doesn't have that same state. But because that person is beloved to Allah, there's a blessing in that decision. And there's an immense amount of good that comes from that that's just simply not there with the other person. That is very possible. And not just about a benefit, but there's also a protection. Is that, that when the righteous are behind something, there's also a protection that's there as well for that person and that for whatever it is that that person is doing. There's a protection as a result of that. And so that these, these are realities that for some people it's, it's very difficult for them to understand. And especially when people start to that do new things that aren't the way that, the, that things were done before. But as Sidi Abdul Hakim Murad reminds us in one of his contentions, uh, roughly he says, is that the reality of tradition is not just to focus upon the past, it's to do what they did. You connect to this tradition of the past so that you can understand the principles in all of its manifestations and all of understanding its historical development. And essentially we're speaking in the terms of principles, but that relates to beliefs, it relates to that uh, legal rulings and so forth and different states of the heart and all of these different things. But it's to understand that and it's to live it and internalize it and do what it is that they did. Now we have to be very humble in that regard because you look at yourself and who are we compared to the people who came before us? And we don't have that false sense of humility that doesn't allow us to do anything. No, we do what it is that we can do. And we never say that, oh no, I can never be like them so I'm not going to do anything. No. We still do whatever it is that we are that's supposed to be doing despite our state and despite our deficiencies, despite our shortcomings and despite our lack of knowledge and our lack of piety and our lack of remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You compare yourself to these people and it's, you're supposed to be humble in relation to it. But it doesn't mean that we can't do something. We have to that take what it is that we that can and to do our best. And then, as we heard our teachers say, it's, it is possible as well, where you could have someone that has much less and all of those meanings of less and that there's greater effects that are brought about on their hands from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Allah's affair. And uh, we have to detach ourselves from the result and to do things with sincerity, inshallah, there will be great things that come from it. So, and every time, there's always good and evil. There's always virtuous people and there's always bad people. There's always people who do good and there's others who are corrupt. But generally speaking, when we talk about a time in this relative sense, so we're not necessarily talking about the entire world, usually we're talking about right, the Muslim world, we're talking about different places uh, within the Muslim world. But in a very general sense, that when a given time, virtue, goodness, loyalty, and righteous behavior are manifest in predominant in corruption, error, and the people and their people are subdued and inconspicuous, that time is said to be good and righteous. And this especially refers to that earliest period in Medina and Manawara with 
the Prophet وسلم, and even from before that in Mecca and Mukarramah, and the rightly guided successors, and then to the degree that it also includes the time that the companions lived and the Tabi'in. And then the opposite is true, is that when the time and its people are predominant evil and corrupt, when good is scarce and the virtue is few and hidden, such times are attributed to evil and temptations are said to be evil and wicked times of temptations and afflictions. And despite that, there always is, even in these times of temptation and afflictions, great good. So, generally speaking, when we speak of our time, this is a difficult time. We all feel that it's a difficult time. And if you would rewind and speak to people 50 years ago, there's a lot of people who would say the same thing. People that were living in Turkey when it was secularized would say, wow, this is a very difficult time. Imagine that having lived under an Islamic state and then all of a sudden it falls. Imagine living through the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the, the, the fitna that is there after right, one of the longest lasting, the longest lasting that dynasty, if you think of it, like kind of in a more Western sense, but that uh, rule in human history all of those years, and then it falls and crumbles right before your eyes. And then everything that happens after that. I mean, imagine if you were living at a time, you'd think that the Day of Judgment would be very soon. And imagine living in Bosnia when the war took place and being a part of a genocide. I mean, and then in Europe, imagine witnessing the destruction of World War I and World War II. Imagine living through that. And so the point here is, is that, um, that we have to understand the time in which we live and, and to know what is the most important thing that we can be doing in that time. And in that regard, there are certain things that we always have to be doing. And that's what gives us clarity. However, if we leave those things that we know that we should be doing, then things become very, very confusing. There are things that you always have to do. We always have to pray. We always have to fast. We always have to have good character. We always have to take a life of learning. That has to become the foundation and the bedrock of our practice. If it doesn't, to the degree that it isn't, will be to the degree that we are confused by the time in which we live. And it doesn't mean that we're going to always have all the answers of how to respond to our time. But we make that the place of focus. We make self-transformation the focus. We make the focus our path to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we have to stubbornly refuse any tendencies that are taking us away from that. And if we do, Allah ta'ala will give us that much more clarity than other people get in terms of how what it is that we should be doing in our time now. And... Um, that Imam Haddad just lived about 300 years ago. So he passed away 1132. So what does he say? Our current times and those immediately before are predominantly corrupt, evil, and villainous. Good and virtue are rare. In superior and virtuous people, few. Inconspicuous, subdued, and vanquished. This is Imam Haddad. Now keep in mind... During his time, Imam Abdullah bin Alwid Haddad, the one we're reading his books 300 years later, and love so much, and think of him as one of the greatest Imams of the Ummah of our Prophet. 
he actually had very few, few students in his time. And there's stories of some of his great students going to study with him, where they would ask about where his house was. And so they'd find someone in the same neighborhood, like in his same neighborhood, literally. Do you know where so-and-so is? And they would say, it would be said to him, you mean that old blind man? The old blind man. That's how some of his neighbors looked at him. The old blind man. And if you go to see where he used to teach, part, one of the places he used to teach was in his deqa, which is like his, basically now there's stairs, where he would go from his home, walk down the stairs, and then they go to his, what you guess you could call like a patio, and then enter into the masjid. And there's only place for like two or three people there. And so sometimes that when we think about these great imams, we imagine them having, you know, thousands of students before them. And that wasn't always the case. That uh, Habib Ahmed bin Hassan al-Tas mentions, who was one of the great imams, great imams. Just, he was just a treasure trove of knowledge and could articulate the minhaj that of his forefathers and his that spiritual lineage in such a, an amazing way. He said for about 25 years from the time that he returned from his travels of study, which took him to places like Egypt and to the Haramain, and he comes back to Hadramaut. He said, he speaks of it in this context, and I don't know if that's Mubalagha, he says, not a single person came to me to actually seek knowledge and to ask from the greatest of things that I could offer. He says, rather, people always just were wondering, they'd come to me and ask me to make dua for children, or this or that, or all these other types of things. He says, and on top of all of that, they even spoke ill of me and said, the Habib was muqassar, he just fell short in our rights, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that. And this is Imam Ahmed Hassan al-Tas. Yes, he lived in a place where it was, there was a lot of Bedouin-like rough people, but there's a lot of places where there's Bedouin-like rough people. And some of them are in the middle of big cities. But the point here is, is that this is the way things are. And um, so it gives you realistic expectations. And it, 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 it gives you the ability to appreciate the good that Allah Taala has opened up for you in your time. And this is something we have to be thankful for, for our opportunities to that worship Allah Taala and to learn our deen in a, an environment that is more distraction-free than others. This is from the great blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you look at what he says here, look at these traits that he says uh, about these righteous people, is that they are qalilun, so they are few, masturun, he translates as inconspicuous, they're hidden. Maglubun, they're subdued, and maqhurun, and vanquished. Meaning is that they're maglub, there's very little that they can actually even do. They're not even able to do a lot, and they're maqhur, is that they're vanquished. They, they just, there's, there's this simply things that they want to do that they can't do. And they're very limited in subhanAllah. And these might be great people. And so we have to have correct perspectives and one of the wisdoms in understanding things as such is that it will ward off some of the waswasa of shaitan when he tries to that cause us to see things in other than a way that is that motivating in relation to what it is that we can do in any given time and in the end 
is that we know that there are 120 that rose of the rose of paradise. And we know that there will be people in that even those first rows that exist in the very, very last days. There will always be people that are in those first rows. And the way that people achieve that is not necessarily the way that they think. And this is why that it, it's very important to understand your time because sometimes we're prevented from putting in that the energy needed in order to do certain things that we don't even see them as in the realm of possibility that they would lead to something great. But not that we see what we do as great, but that if you have the perspective that in any given time that you can reach the highest degrees of closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, oftentimes that might come to someone who is a very simple person, doesn't have a lot of knowledge, and doesn't even have a lot of worship. But based upon their circumstances, is that they reach the highest degrees of closeness to Allah Ta'ala. That is also very possible. And so, in other words, is that the more difficult times become, from another perspective, is that the more open the ranks of closeness to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala are. And that's one of the things that Habib Hussain told us at the retreat. He says is that there are, there's mercy descending everywhere. And in that particular place, if there's very few people that are there to receive that mercy, it's likely that a disproportionate amount of that mercy is going to go to that a smaller number of people. In other words, there's an immense opportunity. And if, Allah ta if our Prophet teaches us about the, uh, about the dua of entering into the sukh, which is we should all memorize this dua, every time that we go to a mall, every time that we go to a store, and Allah's wasa, every time even that we're online shopping, is it make the dua? La ilaha la wahda wa shirikara, lahumun kulul hamd, yuhi wa yumit, huwa hayyun la yamutu, biyadihi al-khair wa ala kudishayun qadir. Our Prophet said, whoever says this dua when he enters into the suq, the market, or store, the buy and sell, is that the, he will that have alf alf hasana written for him, one million good deeds written for him. He will have alf alf sayyah removed, one million bad deeds removed from him, and he will be raised alf alf daraja. He will be raised one million degrees. Just from saying that very simple invocation. And the son of, of Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar, he used to go into the marketplace every day just so he could say that dua. And the reason this is the case, because our Prophet says in another hadith, aswakuha. The most detestable places to Allah are the marketplaces. Why? Because this is the place of shahawat. This is the place of people's desire. So that if someone finds, like in their heart, that when they move to a particular place, they miss all of these stores. H&M and Zara and that don't have their Apple store as close as they like it or whatever the PC corresponding store is or they don't have you know all of these things that they really want there that's not a good sign you got to work on your heart really really it's not a good sign you got to work on your heart because our prophet said those are the abghalud biladi Allah 
and that if we find intimacy in malls and we feel estranged in a masjid, that's a sign of nifaq, a sign of hypocrisy. So we got to work on our hearts and that but we should feel comfortable in a musalla, in a masjid, in gatherings of knowledge, in gatherings of dhikr. We should love, our Prophet said about those, فَرْتَعُوا Graze therein. And think of the image of grazing. Cattle just graze for hours and hours and on in. Goats graze for hours and hours on then. That the metaphor there is one of feeling so comfortable that we don't even want to get up. We want to stay and be in that gathering. And uh, that's the way that it should be. But until we're there, we need to work on our heart and to ask Allah Ta'ala to bless us to be a reality, that, uh, to make this a reality within us. And that He says, God, it is whose help we seek. He is sufficient for us and He is the best of custodians. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you rely upon Allah Ta'ala, is that He will facilitate for you what is best in any given time. And having said that, and despite all of the difficulties of the time in which we live, our teachers, subhanAllah, are that stubbornly optimistic, stubbornly optimistic in a good way, stubbornly optimistic about the good and time in which we live. And I think I mentioned to everyone already, is that when it was explained to one of our teachers about the time in which we live and people's worries with the... the, the uh, new political ch- changes and that the answer was very simple la there's no need to fear al khair muqbil alaykum good is coming to you good is coming to you and if allah ta'ala that wants to bring about good he will that did not moses alayhi salatu wassalam they grew up in the palace of the pharaoh an amazing story he grew up in the palace of pharaoh and this is why that, that Pharaoh tried to that remind him of this, right? That at a later stage, right? Did we not raise you as a child? Right? Did we not raise you as a child? And that trying to make that claim, like who do you think you are? That we raised you as a child. And this happens oftentimes to people that convert. Is that people in their own society that see their society as the best society that in human existence and people then that go against the grain and actually accept the truth of Islam. This is oftentimes how they're made to feel, right? Almost in that sense, did you not, were you not raised in this society? Were you not given all of this opportunity? And it's as if that they are saying like, this is what you choose to do, right? And that even though you had all of this privilege and all of this opportunity, and our response is, absolutely, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah ala ni'matil wa we thank Allah for the blessing of Islam, and it is sufficient as a blessing. Sufficient. And every time someone looks at you funny, every time that you go through secondary checks at the border, and it seems to happen more and more these days, is it just remember, subhanAllah, if that's because that we're Muslim, khair. If, that, if that's what we have to go through, that extra screening, and that quad S on our boarding passes and all of that, khalas. We don't. We ask Allah for afwar afia, for we want to be. We want things to be facilitated for us. However, if that's what we have to go through, that's very little, very very little. And you know, we should we should that be proud of the fact that we are servants of Allah. That's what true pride. That's where it lies.
true pride lies in that we are abid of Allah. That's our pride and that's our glory, is that we are servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that we are proud of the sharia of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu because those are individual opportunities for us to show our servitude to our Lord, tabarak wa ta'ala. Inshallah ta'ala, we will read a little bit from the man in the universe. How are we doing on time here? What time is Mokro? In two minutes? Wow. Okay. We'll just read a little bit and so we can get a quick qasida in from Sayyidi Abdul Fatah. So we, for those following along, uh, I know there's different prints of men in the universe. Uh, we have the orange cover, which is one of the earlier prints that Dr. Mustafa Bedoui says here on, toward, on the last paragraph of page 12. The invisible worlds also exercise their influence at the individual level. There is a two-way traffic between each person and the higher and lower worlds. For instance, there's a well-known hadith to the effect that whenever a person utters La ilaha illallah, a pillar of light extending upward all the way to the Divine Presence begins to resonate and continues to do so until the command issues from that presence for it to stop, to which it replies that it cannot possibly stop unless the person in question is forgiven all his sins. And he mentions the takhrij of that hadith that's in the collection of Abu Naim and others narrate it as well. Other good deeds also ascend to the throne. They are noted by the Supreme Assembly, the Mala' al-A'la, who bless and support those whose deeds gain their approval and satisfaction. The corrupt, on the other hand, are cursed and obstructed in their endeavors. Again, the result of such action by the Supreme Assembly is not to eradicate all evil, nor will the people they support always be perceptively victorious in this world. Evil is a necessity. SubhanAllah, look at this an overlap of all these meanings. Evil is a necessity. That's an interesting idea to think about that. Evil is a necessity, and the times must deteriorate so as to reach the bottom of the abyss, at which time the horn will be sounded and the resurrection begin. SubhanAllah. We know the world is going to deteriorate. This is the decree of Allah. We know it's going to deteriorate. But how are you and I in relation to its deterioration? That is really the question. There are also subversive influences arising from the lower infernal regions. The Quran states concerning Satan and his host, He sees you, he and his tribe, from whence you see them not. We made the devil's allies for those who do not believe. Shaitan sees us, but we do not see him. And then Allah also says, Shall I tell you on whom the devils come down? They come down on every sinful slanderer. And Allah says, the devils inspire their allies to dispute with you. It is also written in the Quran, those who have said, God is our Lord. Then, they were, then were steadfast upon them the angels descend, saying, Fear not, neither sorrow, and rejoice in that garden that you were promised. We are your allies in this world and the next. So what he's trying to get at here is that these worlds we do not see, but... There's a reality to them and there is a lot taking place therein. We are told about them what we need to know to protect ourselves from them and to that do whatever it is that we can do to benefit from them. And so even though that we don't see that what is taking place there is that we've been given through the prophetic guidance a way of being and a number of things to do to maximize our benefit and maximize the warding off of the harm of that the, the, these various realms. And this is a great blessing of Allah subhanahu uh, wa ta'ala. 
And so understanding is, is so, so important. And um, that the prophetic teachings, subhanAllah, that the, the more and more that you come to that realize how great they are and what it is that our Prophet said and really that uh, conveyed to us, the more and more you realize that, that the blessing of Islam is indeed the various, the greatest blessing of all. May Allah Ta'ala make this blessing firm in our hearts and to bless us despite the time which we live to be from people that are successful and that live in a way that is pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. Our Prophet encouraged us to be like the bee. He encouraged us to be like the bee. That in a hadith that he said, indeed the likeness of a believer is like a bee. And what does the bee do? That as our Prophet said, أَكَلَتْ طَيِّبًا فَوَضَعَتْ طَيِّبًا The Prophet said that be ate from that which was pure and wholesome and then emanated that which is pure and wholesome. And then he even went on to say, وَقَعَتْ فَلَمْ تَكْسِرْ وَلَمْ تُفْسِدْ That when the bee lands, bees don't destroy or ruin the flowers and the buds and the foliage that they extract pollen from. Is that they didn't break the petals, nor did they spoil or ruin the plants. Uh, on the, uh, quite the contrary, they do the opposite. They are that essential to the... that ecosystem that we live in and that this is the way that a believer that should be in any time but especially in the end of time because another generation of this hadith that mentions a number of the signs of the end of time first and then mentions that about the believer so this is the way that a believer should be we should always strive despite one's time despite the difficulties despite the evil despite all the challenges to that have a perspective of focusing on what's good in trying to remain positive and optimistic so that inshallah ta'ala we can that then gather in ourselves that which is good and then as a result is that not be problems in further the problems we want to be help people heal and we want to be a part of the solution actively work, work towards it because we know it is honey that has emanated from the bee and we know that honey is a shifa and so we need to be a source of healing for all of those are around us, but we can't be a source of healing for others if we're not healthy. If we're not, if we don't have a conception of what health is, and we aren't healthy in of our own selves, it makes it more difficult to help other people maintain their health as well. We should be, this should be at the forefront of our mind. May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq, open up the doors of all good to us, and bless us in all of our different affairs. Bless our families and our children and our communities and exposes to the greatest manifestation of his mercy in this world and the next. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam.